This is Community Radio, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. I'm Claudio Mendoza. The California report hopscotches around our state today. First, news from Mariposa about the Oak Fire, before heading to Los Angeles, where demand for the monkeypox vaccine is far greater than the supply. Finally, two stories from Oakland. Truckers are protesting AB5 in designated free speech zones set up by the Port of Oakland, and Oakland City Council members are urging state lawmakers to move quickly for an official repeal of Prop 8. National Native News covers Pope Francis's visit with Canadian residential school survivors, and we close with an update from Sid Brown about how the Rices fire affected the South Yuba River State Park. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. The Oak Fire is currently the largest fire in the state, burning west of Yosemite National Park. During a packed town hall last night, officials said the fire slowed down slightly yesterday, but it's still 0% contained, with most of the activity in the Sierra National Forest. Dean Gold is with the U.S. Forest Service. He says the area's history of large fires might actually help. For instance, if the Oak Fire runs into the burn scar of the 2018 Ferguson Fire. That likely isn't going to stop this, but it's certainly going to slow it down and give us much more of a fighting chance to get uh, the treatments in that we need to to really get uh, that portion of the incident uh, wrapped up. Over 3,500 residents have been evacuated and many more are on evacuation advisory. And now a monkeypox update. L.A. County health officials closed the online waiting list for the monkeypox vaccine Thursday, just one day after it went live. As KPCC's Jackie Fortier reports, some qualified people are being turned away at vaccine sites and given conflicting advice. L.A. resident Taylor Slingerland qualifies to get a monkeypox vaccine. L.A. County expanded eligibility to gay and bisexual men and transgender people who take PrEP, an HIV prevention drug. But when he got to the vaccine site, they said he couldn't get the shot. And they said, oh, actually, uh, we just now have modified the criteria. And they gave me a form that they said I would have to bring to my doctor to complete to say that I had other conditions to, to meet the eligibility requirements. But that wasn't right. People who take PrEP still qualify, but they have to get an eligibility text from the L.A. County Health Department in order to get the shot. Walk-ups are discouraged. As of Friday, those with a text faced long lines at the monkeypox vaccine sites. State health officials have called on the federal government to send hundreds of thousands of doses, but L.A. County will only receive another 9,800 this week. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. Two children in the United States, including one in California, have been diagnosed with monkeypox. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the children are in good health and receiving treatment. How they caught the disease is still being investigated, but officials think it was through household transmission. One of the kids is a toddler in California, and the other is an infant who is not a U.S. resident but was tested while in Washington, D.C. Other details haven't been disclosed. 
In the Bay Area, truckers at the Port of Oakland continued to protest for the second straight week over AB5, the state law that reclassifies many independent contractors as employees. But truckers have agreed not to block access to terminals and plan instead to rally in designated free speech zones set up by the port. KQED's Holly J. McDeed reports. Randeep Dillon drives a truck at the Port of Oakland, and he worries that being forced to become an employee would take away his independence. Even though I own my own truck, I pay for diesel, I pay for insurance, I'm going to have to work under somebody else. But he says not enough truckers showed up in the early hours to protest and keep the momentum going. Many want to go back to work and feel pressure from the port. I mean, the port's not wrong. They want their operations to continue. UCLA law professor Scott Cummings has studied labor movements and the trucking industry. He says it's important to remember that working conditions for truckers are way worse today than in the 1970s, when most port truckers were union employees with high wages. The real take-home pay of these drivers has shrunk quite dramatically. The structural shift has really been to degrade the conditions of drivers from a labor standpoint. Port officials say they're continuing to work with the governor to address the need for resources in the trucking community. For the California Report, I'm Holly J. McDeed. In other news, the Oakland City Council is expected to vote tomorrow to urge state lawmakers to put a measure on the ballot that would officially repeal Prop 8. KQED's Rachel Myro has more. A federal judge struck down Prop 8, but the 2008 voter-approved initiative to ban same-sex marriage is still in the California Constitution. State lawmakers are talking about bringing a repeal before voters, but they're not moving fast enough, says Oakland City Council President Pro Tem Sheng Tao. Putting ourselves on the record and making sure that we put some pressure on the state legislature and governor is incredibly important at this point in time because there's just a lot of fears right now, and I feel that it should have been put on the 2022 ballot. Some fear the U.S. Supreme Court might overturn its earlier decision enshrining marriage equality, in which case there is a risk Prop 8 could become law again. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. And down south, Customs and Border Protection say a record number of migrants have been injured while trying to cross the border illegally into San Diego County. KPBS border reporter Gustavo Solis says most of these injuries are being attributed to Trump's border wall. Mexican officials say that Donald Trump's border wall is killing migrants here in San Diego County. Carlos Gonzalez Gutierrez is the Consul General of Mexico in San Diego. He says 80% of all migrant injuries happened when people fell off the 30-foot wall. Nearly 250 Mexican nationals were injured while trying to cross the border in the fiscal year 2021, compared to just under 200 the year before. I am convinced that the decision to raise the wall up to 30 feet did not stop the migration flows, nor did it deviate them necessarily. But it certainly increased the number of people who were seriously injured in their attempt to cross. The Border Patrol's acting deputy chief patrol agent, Patricia McGurk-Daniel, blames smugglers for trying to profit from desperate migrants. I can tell you that whether it's a wall, whether it's the ocean, whether it's the desert terrain, whether it's the mountains where frigid temperatures can drop and people can get hypothermia, smugglers will continue to push their commodities through without any disregard for the health and safety of those that they push through into our communities. They just don't care. That was KPBS reporter Gustavo Solis reporting from San Diego. 
Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals. PersonalCapital.com. Stanford Healthcare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And that's the California Report for Monday, July 25th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Pope Francis is in Canada this week, and he's expected to apologize to indigenous people there for the Catholic Church's role in the abuses many suffered at Indian residential schools. National Native News has the details. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Pope Francis has arrived in Canada at the start of a six-day official visit. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, he'll meet this week with residential school survivors and is expected to apologize for the Catholic Church's role in the schools. The Pope arrived late Sunday afternoon in Edmonton, Alberta, where he was welcomed by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Governor General Mary Simon. On hand were other church, indigenous, and political dignitaries. In a message on his Twitter account, Pope Francis wrote, I hope with God's grace that my penitential pilgrimage might contribute to the journey of reconciliation already undertaken. Please accompany me with prayer. But the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Roseanne Archibald, was not happy that she was not included in the official welcome. And we don't feel that it has been about survivors. It has been more about the church, promoting the church's idea, fundraising for the church when they're asking people to pick up their tickets. I mean, this we have to refocus on what we're really doing here, and that's about survivors accepting or not accepting and listening to that apology from the Pope. Archibald says she's also disappointed that there were no women in leadership roles for the Edmonton welcome. The Pope is to visit a former Indian residential school south of Edmonton today and is expected to deliver his first public statement in Canada, and he's expected to apologize to Indigenous peoples for the Church's role in the abuses they suffered. It's estimated that about 150,000 Native children were forced to attend the residential schools across Canada from the late 1800s to the late 1900s. Thousands were physically, sexually, and emotionally abused. Many died. More than 60% of the schools were run by the Catholic Church. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. The Menominee Nation has announced a partnership with the Seminole Tribe of Florida to try again to open an off-reservation casino in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Chuck Kornbach of Station WUWM in Milwaukee reports. The Menominee made the announcement just hours after a village board okayed giving a company linked to the Seminole up to two years to buy 60 acres for the casino project. This is the second collaboration for the Menominee and Seminole tribes. Seven years ago, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker blocked a casino plan. But Menominee Chairman Von Korn Sr. says his tribe is still looking for ways to support its members. We have a really uh, difficult time meeting the needs of uh, the members of our tribe. And so we've always looked for ways to uh, generate additional revenue to help to meet those needs. And so that's been our um, goal for a very long time, and it remains our goal yet today. Korn notes that Walker, a Republican, is no longer Wisconsin governor. Democrat Tony Evers is. That would be my, um, well, I can't 
say, point of view maybe that, you know, be more favorable. The governor's office is only one of several government entities which would need to okay the casino. So would the city and county of Kenosha and Bureau of Indian Affairs. Evers says he's a long way from making a decision, but he doesn't rule out approval. I have approved casinos in the past, so it's not like I'm anti-gambling. In fact, I think the tribal nations of Wisconsin have the right to do that, and I've approved sports gambling and some other things. But Evers is in a re-election fight against Republicans this year, so the fate of the project may not be known for some time. For National Native News, I'm Chuck Quirmbach. Native journalist Tim Gallego passed away Sunday in Rapid City, South Dakota. He was a co-founder of the Native American Journalists Association and started several newspapers. A GoFundMe was recently set up for Gallego, seeking assistance after he had major medical issues. His family posted on social media that he passed away peacefully, surrounded by his daughters and wife. He was 88 years old. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation. Supporting Native-led initiatives protecting lands, waters, and cultures by building networks, community, and organizational capacity. Proposals accepted through September 1st at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. Support by Ameren, the 100% tribally owned insurance partner working with tribal governments and enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian country. Info at Ameren.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. The Oak Fire is currently burning near the town of Midpines on Highway 140 between Yosemite National Park and the town of Mariposa. This afternoon, KVMR's Miss Jiff and Felton Pruitt worked together to file this report. As of this afternoon, the Oak Fire in Mariposa County has grown to over 17,000 acres with 10% containment. KVMAR's Miss Jiff spoke with Mike Van Lobensels, the unit chief for CAL FIRE, down at the fire in Mariposa. Do we have any hint on how it started? I do understand everyone's concern and wanting to know that. For we're us, not there the yet. Integrity, they're not there. So cool. it's under investigation. We have brought in multiple people from locally as well as outside CAL FIRE, Mariposa Sheriff's Office, United States Forest Service have all brought in investigators. And it's a coordinated effort to do that follow up on every lead to ensure that we can get a, a cause identified yeah, and yeah. be able to get it out to the public. But as that soon could as be a while, right? Things it, have it to It can be because we go. need to ensure that the integrity of the investigation stays intact and we're able to identify the correct source before we just throw something out there that that is not correct. For us laymen, what made the fire movement so unique? I I was trying to understand because it wasn't necessarily wind or things like that. It it wasn't. So what what you have is is, is a thing. So you got the hills and we call it topography. So topography where you get those strong runs up the hill, what it does, it creates its own wind up in in certain areas through canyons, through drainages and different stuff. So what you saw is a lot lot of the wind without a, a strong wind driving the fire. You had the topography driving the fire. As you start getting into drainages and stuff, they'll start pushing fires different directions. And as the fuel's dry, as dry as everything is, you'll see them ignite a lot faster going 
than we've seen in the past uphill and downhill across the board. So giving the dry fuel conditions, the prolonged drought, um, the hot temperatures that we were having, we just haven't hit a, a right temperatures right time the, the probability of ignition on the day of this incident out on the line when we went out there and measured it um, at the beginning was 100 so that means probability of ignition is 100 it means if we drop the 100 matches into into the grass that 100 times it's going to start instead of a, a normal what we usually see of, of 60 to 70 to 80 this time of year with the bug kill that we've had in the area over the previous years, like I said, the terrain, just the dry, dead and down fuels from the previous fires of the Carstens fire of 2013, it, it just was a recipe to see what you saw on this fire. I told, said last night, and I'll say again, getting out of this without having any major injuries to the public or major injuries to the firemen, to, to me is is a win-win on, on this situation. Yes. Um, you know, everyone put in a tremendous fight it, that the public leaving when they are asked to, I can't tell you how huge that is for us because that, that's a whole nother avenue we don't have to worry about where we could focus on the firefight instead of trying to try to get people out of the way. That was Cal Fire Unit Chief Mike Van Lobensells talking about the Oak Fire down in Mariposa County. As smoke from the Oak Fire drifts into the Sierra foothills, Placer County has issued an air quality advisory through Tuesday. The Placer Department of Health and Human Services and the Placer County Air Pollution Control District announced the joint advisory in a news release on Sunday evening. In the release, authorities urged that residents of the county avoid all unnecessary outdoor activities if they can see or smell smoke. In the Colfax area, air quality levels reached the unhealthy designation on Sunday, according to an alert from the Sacramento Metropolitan Air Quality Management District. In Auburn and Rio Vista, air quality was at a moderate level on Sunday. That from the Sacramento Bee. Looking now at regional weather and regional air quality, in the Grass Valley and Nevada City area, tonight partly cloudy with a low around 67. Tuesday will bring a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms after 11 a.m., but otherwise it'll be mostly sunny with a high near 92. The AQI for Grass Valley and Nevada City is currently good with a value of zero and is expected to remain that way through tomorrow with an expected AQI of 38. In Truckee and the Lake Tahoe area, tonight widespread haze with a low around 52. The haze will continue into Tuesday with a high near 86. The AQI for Truckee and Lake Tahoe is considered moderate today with a value of 87, but it is expected to improve on Tuesday, lowering to a value of 46. For Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms after 11 p.m., then partly cloudy with a low around 61 degrees. There will be a 20% chance of showers and thunderstorms on Tuesday morning before becoming mostly sunny with a high near 94. The current AQI for Sacramento is moderate with a value of 75, but is expected to become good tomorrow with a lower value of 24. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. We close our newscast with another edition of A Walk in the Park. 
This week, Sid Brown shares how the Rice's fire affected the South Yuba River State Park. Well, we're right in the, the thick of the heat of the summer. People are enjoying the river, and South Yuba River State Park is really the focus for much of the outdoor recreation this time of year in our, in our region. And people come from all over. Not just Nevada County, but we have visitors from the Bay Area, from from the Valley, from Marysville, Yuba City, out of state and out of country. So we experience a lot of visitor use and visitor appreciation for our beautiful outdoor environment, especially the river. The, the places where people access the river really start down at Bridgeport at Pleasant Valley Road. We're on the Bridgeport Covered Bridge. Highway 49 crosses the South Yuba River, and there's a trail just up the, up the road, up Highway 49, the Independence Trail. There's a new access off Independence Trail West down to Jones Bar, and then there's the Purden Crossing at um, Lake Vera Purden Crossing Road and Edwards Crossing at North Bloomfield Road in the river. And then farther up the hill, you get to the river via a trail, Humbug Trail from Malakoff Diggins State Historic Park. And the South Yuba Trail goes really from Purden Road all the way up to the town of Washington. So the river can be accessed by foot that entire way. I do want to um, give a little update. I'm sure you know we had a very close call down at South Yuba River State Park late in June in the first week of July, the Rice's Fire. Fortunately, state parks only had a small, maybe a couple of acres actually involved in the fire, and the Bear Yuba Land Trust also had uh, more damage on their Rice's Crossing Preserve property. I think about 111 acres were burnt in that fire. The total for that fire was 904 acres. Maybe five residences were destroyed and eight other structures. Um, This is a concern. We live in an environment that has very adapted to fire, and we all live with that concern, especially this time of year. So we're working hard as a community, I know, to reduce the fire, wildfire hazards. There's a number of local neighborhood groups that are working together, and the county is collaborating to work with the state and federal government to reduce some of the wildfire hazards. So just a note here, uh, pay attention. There are some local issues that are coming up uh, for you to pay attention to and maybe consider becoming more informed about the risk of fire in your neighborhood. And again, I want to shout out and thank the South Yuba River Citizens League with the River Ambassador Program, which is a joint program with California State Parks. And those volunteers are set up at Bridgeport and at Purden Crossing on the weekends. And they're always looking for more volunteers to join in the team so that we can welcome people to the river and educate them about recreation and safe recreation and 
leave no trace type of recreation at the river. And there will be a river cleanup event uh, sponsored by the South Yuba River Citizens League for the Yuba River watershed. So it's a very extensive area where cleanup occurs with uh, teams of volunteers. And again, like last year, this will be a multi-day event that will begin the week before September 17th and will conclude on September 17th. So that's it for now. Please enjoy your public lands and we'll see you next time. That's our newscast for Monday, July 25th. Head on over to our website, kvmr.org, to listen to the extended version of A Walk in the Park, or simply subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to have it delivered directly to your device. KVMR gets support from its generous listeners and from businesses like Ben Franklin Crafts, locally owned and offering art classes for children, including Mommy and Me creative classes, and Ben Franklin Summer Camp. For arts and crafts, Ben Franklin is on Sutton Way in Grass Valley. Online, benfranklin-crafts.com. And Four Paws Animal Clinic. Dr. Susan Murphy and Sue Lester and staff are proud to support KVMR, providing medical, dental, alternative, and surgical services for cherished companions on Searles Avenue in Nevada City. Four Paws AC. Com. Up next, it's Wings. Tonight, part one of The Second Coming of Joan of Arc, a one-woman play that shares her story with contemporary women. As always, we thank you for listening and for supporting your local and independent community radio station. I'm Claudio Mendoza. We'll see you tomorrow.